Welcome to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Tuesday, June 8th, 2021, and we are live. Hope everybody's doing well today. Well, look, it's been a very, very busy day, and uh, I got a lot of birthday wishes on social media, especially on Facebook yesterday. So thanks for all the birthday wishes. It was over 200. It came through yesterday, so I'm going back responding to a lot of them. So thanks for that. Uh, I turned 50 years old yesterday. A lot of people from their responses is uh, hard to believe that uh, they didn't believe I was 50. Yeah, I am. So, <laughs> you know, like I said before, I don't, I don't drink alcohol. I don't use drugs. I don't smoke marijuana. Don't smoke cigarettes. I've uh, been a vegetarian for 16 years, so, you know, <laughs> it is what it is, right? <laughs> All right, so on today's show, you know, there's so much going on, and um, uh, I want to follow up on a story that we covered back in April and uh, I think May. This deals with the um, Bruce uh, the, the um, Bruce Beach property, the Bruce Beach property in uh, Manhattan, uh, California, uh, Manhattan Beach, California. And this was property owned by African-American family, and the property was taken by eminent domain around 1924 by the city of Manhattan Beach. This was a wealthy African-American family. Um, so uh, Willa and Charles Bruce, a wealthy African-American family. And their property was taken by... Um, uh, eminent domain, all right? And there's been an effort by their descendants and others to get the property back. So the, the on June 2nd, on June 2nd, the uh, state Senate in California approved a bill to return uh, the, uh, the beachfront property to the descendants of um, Willa and Charles Bruce. So we're going to give an update on that story. Uh, and this also is another example of how African-Americans were very prosperous. Uh, many African-Americans were very prosperous all across the country and different ways that our wealth, our land was taken away from us. OK, different ways that our wealth and land was taken away from us. So when I hear people. I hear certain people tell African-Americans to try harder. OK, uh, you know, I have to respond. It's like uh, that's not how you got what you got. Because you had laws and policies that now distributed wealth, power and resources into the hands of Europeans. You had laws and policies to help you. And they work usually to our detriment, to the detriment of African-Americans. So we're going to um, discuss that, give you an update on um that story so hopefully they get the property back the property today is valued in the millions one estimate is about 75 million dollars that is valued at so we'll talk about that story then uh back on may 26 i saw this story and did not have a chance to talk about it uh because you know so much going on and i, I read so many stories a day I, I monitor about 35 different news sources 
on a daily basis. So a lot of articles, you know, we posted our Facebook fan page, the African history network, the African history network. Uh, sometimes, you know, articles I read, I don't get a chance to, uh, post them, um, when I want to, or may not get a chance to post them at all. But it, many people are familiar with the Montgomery bus boycott. And you've heard me talk about the Montgomery bus boycott, uh, a number of times on this show. Uh, I do a lecture dealing with the, um, I did a lecture do, do, dealing with the, uh, distortion of Dr. King's legacy. And in that lecture, I talk about the Montgomery bus boycott. Well, a lot of people know about that boycott, or at least a little bit about it. And that boycott started uh, December 5th, 1955. And it lasted 381 days. It ended finally um, December 20th, 19, uh, December 20th, 1956. Okay. But a lot of people don't know about the Tallahassee uh, bus boycott that started on uh, Saturday morning, May 26, 1956. And it was sparked by college students. It was sparked by students, um, Carrie Patterson and Wilhelmina Jakes. And they were, they were students at uh, Florida A&M. Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University, HBCU. And this bus boycott is going to last for seven months. This bus boycott lasted for seven months, and it changed the small city of Tallahassee, Florida, forever. And we just commemorated the 65th anniversary of the Tallahassee bus boycott, which started May 26, 1956. So we're going to talk about that as well on today's show. Now, on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it corrects wrong behavior, what you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts, you can control the circumference of his or her actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here on the African History Network show. We deal with current events in history and politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. So you remember, I remember to say relationships there, probably because I'm not in one. Uh, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828, the sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828, the sign up for our email newsletter. Or visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All right. Uh, shout out to everybody watching us uh, on our uh, social media platforms, our Facebook fan page, the African History Network. We've got Lawrence at uh, Our Black Coin. Uh, ourblackcoin.com. We've got uh, Kevin uh, watching, uh, those watching on YouTube as well. Uh, how's everybody doing? Okay. So I will be in, I want to remind you, Deborah. Yeah, Deborah, uh, thanks, Deborah. She said happy birthday. Uh, I want to remind you, I will be in Atlanta. First time I've been in Atlanta, I think, with two years because I didn't go anywhere uh, in 2020 because of COVID 19. I, I spoke in uh, Chicago. Uh, for Cassiopeia and the Black Mall, February 3rd, 2020. I haven't been anywhere. 
okay, so this is first, I'll be on the road. I don't, I don't know how to act. This is the first time I've been on the road in almost close to two years. But I'll be speaking at the Juneteenth Festival, the three-day Juneteenth uh, Festival and Parade, ninth Annual at Centennial, uh, 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 Centennial Park there in Atlanta. And uh, this is Friday, June 18th through Sunday, June 20th. Okay. Shout out to Bob Johnson and Brad Lewis, who organized this event. It's a monumental task. I talked to Brad today. Talked to Bob Johnson uh, about three weeks ago. You see, you've seen me post information about it, promoting it. Okay, not Bob Johnson from BET, the other Bob Johnson. Uh, visit their website, JuneteenthATL.com, JuneteenthATL.com. This is free and open to the public. This is the Juneteenth Atlanta Parade and Music Festival. Uh, uh, Arrested Development will be performing. Uh, some of you all saw the flyer that I posted about Arrested Development. This is free and open to the public. I'll be speaking uh, Saturday and Sunday, 3 p.m. to 4 p.m at the uh, amphitheater and I also have a vendor booth there as well. So be sure to visit my vendor booth. I'll have my, my lecture, DVD lectures there. You can come talk to me and I'll be registering people for an online course also. All right, let, let's jump into uh, this story here dealing with, I um, want to jump into the story dealing with the property in uh, Manhattan Beach. Okay, now we, we talked about this uh, back in April. There was a article from uh, NBC News, a few articles that we discussed, one from NBC News, uh, how one beach city's uh, racial reckoning is putting California's racist history front and center. Uh, that was from NBC News. And this told the story of um, uh, Bruce and uh, Willa. Um, it just told the story of Bruce and Willa. And these were African-Americans. This is an African-American couple, Willa and Charles Bruce, I should say. This is an African-American couple who were property owners, okay? And they're going to buy property in uh, 1912. They bought a property for uh, something like $1,200, something like that. And they build this property up to be a uh, resort, okay? It's, it, it's in the affluent Manhattan Beach uh, area. And they build this property up to be a resort for African-Americans. Now, this is during uh, segregation. And the city of Manhattan Beach is going to take their land through uh, what's known as eminent domain. Now, Charles and Willa Bruce first purchased their land in 1912 as Manhattan Beach was becoming a popular destination for people from all over Southern California. Trolleys and trains carried uh, their passengers from as far as Pasadena, some 30 miles away near the uh, San Gabriel Mountains. Their vision had been to build a coastal oasis where black families could swim and mingle without being targeted or harassed. OK, so, you know, this taps into the ingenuity and power of African-Americans, even during segregation, which still trying to acquire land and we're going to acquire land. We saw this take place in, uh, uh, in the Greenwood district. Okay. In, uh, uh, Tulsa in North Tulsa, we're going to see this take place in, in various cities across the country. All right. And we're going to see how laws and policies from the federal government oftentimes are going to destroy what we build. Not, not, not all the time, but many times, whether it's taking homes through eminent domain, whether it's taking 
uh, whether it's using the expressway system to run expressways through African-American uh, communities like ran through Greenwood when um, uh, you, uh, Interstate 244 ran through in 1970 or uh, uh, Freeway uh, 75 ran through uh, uh, Greenwood as well. So we're going to see things like this take place. And we're also going to see uh, the overtaxation of property that we own, overassessing our tax liability on property that we own. We're also going to see that as a tool of taking land that, that we acquired as well. So it wasn't just domestic terrorism. It wasn't just the Ku Klux Klan, okay? It wasn't just the Knights of the White Camellia or domestic terrorist organizations like this. But it was also using laws. It's using heirs property, which is one of the ways that was used to take a lot of our farmland from us. OK, the heirs, the heirs property um, a loophole. Uh, and when you listen to uh, people like John Wesley Boyd, Jr., president of the Black Farmers uh, Union, and you find out about the plight of black farmers, you find out how this was used as a tool to take our land from us uh, as well. Okay, uh, I wanna go to this, let me pull up this article here from NBC News. So we talked about this before back in April. This article came out April 20th, April 20th, 2021, updated April 23rd. How one beach city's racial reckoning is putting California's racist history front and center. And there were other articles, uh, New York Times has a really good one that we'll go to here in just a minute. And let me flip over to this here in just a second here. All right, let me flip over to this. Um, okay, so let's flip over here. Okay, so they were pioneers. Um, it was successful from day one and the African-Americans there were harassed from day one, okay? They're also, going to, they're, they're also going to be targeted by the Ku Klux Klan as well. They're going to be targeted by the Ku Klux Klan, uh, and eventually their property is going to be taken by eminent domain. If we look at this article here from uh, NBC News, let's flip over to it. So... Charles and Willa Bruce first purchased their land in 1912, just as Manhattan Beach was uh, becoming a popular destination for people from all over Southern California. Trolleys and trains carried passengers from as far as Pasadena, some 30 miles away near the San Gabriel Mountains. Their vision had been to build a coastal oasis where black families could swim and mingle without being targeted or harassed, where black families could swim and mingle without being targeted and harassed. Okay, uh, they were pioneers. It was successful from day one. And African-Americans there were harassed from day one. Now, the resort included everything typical of a beach getaway. Change, a changing room, dining room, residences, and even a dancing hall. Willa Bruce, the wife, ran the popular cafe and entertainment offerings while her husband worked as a chef on a train, on a train dining car, dining car. They purchased the land for $1,225, okay? 
They purchased the land for $1,225. Now, despite being located on a remote part of the coast, the Bruces were targeted by the Ku Klux Klan and other racist uh, organizations and other racist people as well, white supremacists. City ordinances were passed to make it more difficult for ICE outsiders to visit the beach. So they're being targeted by the city, by laws as well. Okay. Uh, we're going to continue this on the other side of the break. You listen to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. The Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Hi, I'm Joel Wilson, President and CEO of JCW Computer Consulting, LLC, a technology implementation firm with over 20 years of satisfying customers. We offer a full spectrum of industry top-tier branded services. We are an authorized partner or reseller for Lenovo, Zoom, T-Mobile, Microsoft 365, and Surface Tablet, Google Workspace, Acer, Asus, Samsung, PCmatic security software, and many more. Our online store features laptops, Chromebooks, computers, printers, accessories, and software. Businesses, take advantage of our free one-hour Zoom tech consultation and know we offer top nationwide high-speed internet service providers voice over IP, and cellular phone services. Home users, don't miss our current in-stock Chromebook inventory. Please visit us at jcwcc.com or call 215-879-6701. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Tuesday, June 8th, 2021, and we are live. Hope everybody's doing well. Um, calling numbers 313-778-7600, 313-778-7600 is the calling number if you have a question or comment, all right? Uh, Shakita, I just emailed you this clip here. Um, cue that up for me from uh, Alex with MSNBC because we're going to go to that clip. Okay, 313-778-7600 is the calling number if you have a question or comment. So right before the break, I was doing an update on this story that we covered here a number of times. And this deals with a beachfront property in Manhattan Beach that was owned by Charles and Willa Bruce, purchased in 1912 for $1,225. And they built it up into a resort for African-Americans. They were a wealthy African-American couple. The land was taken about 1925 by the city of Manhattan Beach through eminent domain. They wanted the land. The city wanted this land. Um, and today, one estimate is that the land is worth about $75 million. OK, but the uh, the state Senate on June uh, 3rd, I think it was the state Senate of California uh, passed a bill to return June 2nd, passed a bill to return the land. Now, it still has to go through the state assembly, which is like the state house of representatives. It still has to go through that, but this is a big step forward in this multi-million dollar real estate property being returned to the descendants of uh, Charles and Willa Bruce. So I, I wanna go uh, back to the article here from uh, NBC News that we were looking at right, right before the break. So they purchased the land for $1,225 in uh, 1912, okay? 
despite being located on a remote part of the coast, the Bruces were targeted by the Ku Klux Klan and other racist uh, organizations. City ordinances were passed to make it more difficult for outsiders to visit the beach, including making it illegal to change clothes in a car or, 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 or a park. Um, the KKK slashed tires, according to this article, it says for more than one hour. Uh, the KKK slashed tires and even left a burning mattress outside a property belonging to the Bruce family. So they were harassed by the Ku Klux Klan. And we know the Klan is going to have a rejuvenation also in 1915 because of the movie The Birth of a Nation and Reverend William Joseph Simmons, who starts the second incarnation of the Ku Klux Klan. And that plays a big part in what takes place in 1921 in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, because Oklahoma had a growing uh, Ku Klux Klan membership. And they're going to heavily participate in the Tulsa race massacre. Now, uh, the Ku Klux Klan uh, slashed tires and even left a burning mattress outside a property belonging to the Bruce family. Now, similar harassment was experienced in other parts of the county, including a Santa Monica Beach pejoratively dubbed Inkwell, according to um, according to Jefferson as well. And the Jefferson they are referring to is this was a I think this was a spokesperson. Uh, let me go back to that here. Okay, uh, okay, I'll find it here. I have to find that reference. Okay, but uh, anyway, let's continue here. So, in 1924, um, and this is a newspaper article here from Manhattan Beach, Colored People's Resort meets with opposition. Colored People's Resort meets with opposition. In 1924, Manhattan Beach, the city of Manhattan Beach, uh, officials there, Manhattan Beach city officials seized the Bruce's land under eminent domain, under eminent domain, which was also invoked to take property from Japanese uh, people across the state of California and from Latino families who lived in the area near what is now home to Dodger Stadium. Okay. So they're taking land from African Americans, they're taking land from Japanese, they're taking land from Latinos as well. One of these days, we're going to talk about the Zoot Suit Riot. Uh, I've I talked about that before. Can you all hear me? Okay. Somebody said no sound. Refresh your screen. You all should be able to hear me. Uh, refresh. Yeah, refresh your screen if you can't hear me. Okay. One of these days soon, we're going to talk about the Zoot Suit Riot, which occurred... Um, we just had the anniversary of that and I, I've posted about it before. And when it comes to, uh, so you have to understand as a historian, I study history holistically. I just, I just don't study African history, African American history. You, you have to understand history holistically and understand how the history of different people intersect. So when I look at U.S. history, I don't just look at African-American U.S. history because we're living in a country controlled by Europeans and who's passing the laws and policies, et cetera, and who has historically done that. So you have to look at things holistically to be able to understand really how they 
impact you. Um, there was a story from the Zen Education Project from, uh, let me see, what date was this? This was, this was sometime in May because I saw it in their um, This Day in History. Uh, let's see, let's go back. It was late May. And I've posted about this before. It's a piece of history a lot of people don't know about. So we're going to have to deal with this in the next few days. Um, international, which one is that? Great Immigration of the Oregon Trail Bears Campus. Hold on, let me find it here. Because the, the, these histories intersect. And it gives you a better understanding of the, of the history of this country. Uh, the Sedition Act, 1918, where is that? Okay, I'm going to have to go back and find it. It may have been early May, but I saw it, and uh, I've talked about it before, but I didn't get a chance to talk about it here. Okay, Chinese Exclusion. Now, we have to talk about the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 also. That was signed May 6, 1882. Okay, uh, I'll have to go back and and find it. But it deals with um, tax on uh, Latinos, the the Zoot Suit Ride. Zoot Suit Ride, June 3rd. Okay, it was actually June. June 3rd, 1943, the Zoot Suit Riots. The Zoot Suit Riots, okay. Uh, took place in uh, Los Angeles, California. All right, so we'll, we'll talk about that as well. Now it's attacking uh, attacking uh, Mexican American uh, teenagers. All right, let's continue. So let me flip back over here. But I, I, I saw that when I was going through looking at uh, this date in history, I saw that about the Zoot Suit Riot, and I said um, we need to talk about that. So. Uh, the Bruce's land was taken under eminent domain, which was also invoked to take property from Japanese uh, Japanese um, across the state of California and Latino families who lived in the area near what is now home to Dodger Stadium. Now, the Bruce's tried to fight the city and ultimately lost, winning just fourteen thousand five hundred dollars for their beachfront land. OK. Um now, Los Angeles County Supervisor Janice Hahn, H-A-H-N, Janice Hahn. Okay, Los, Los Angeles County Supervisor Janice Hahn said, I learned to swim just a couple of blocks from Bruce's Beach. I learned to swim just a couple of blocks from Bruce's Beach. I'm embarrassed that I did not know the story and how much pain it caused the Bruce family and how much pain it has caused other African-Americans who did, who did know the story and felt like there wasn't going to be any writing of this wrong, okay? Who did know this story and felt like there was not going to be any writing uh, of this wrong. Now, after their land was taken, 
the uh, the Bruce family moved to the city of Los Angeles, California. And eventually out of the state of California, their descendants are now scattered throughout uh, the country. Some living at or below the poverty line, despite once owning land that is now thought to be worth several millions of dollars, said Chief Dwayne Yellowfeather Shepherd, family spokesman and a distant relative of Charles and Willa Bruce. And it's est one estimate is that the land is worth uh, $75 million. Okay, the, the property's been built up. The uh, You have a lifeguard station that's uh, on the property now. Now, if they do return this land, if the state of California does return this land, which they should, you can't return the land and then say, okay, uh, you owe us 50 years worth of back property taxes. As far as I'm concerned, the, the land should be property tax free. They should not have to pay property taxes ever again on this land. OK, when you return that to the family, the, you, they, they should not have to pay property taxes ever again. All right. Uh, I want to go to this clip here in just a second. Uh, we're going to go to clip four, the clip I just sent you, uh, Shakita. I want to go to this clip in just a second. Also, I um, want to remind you, you can register for the online course that I teach on Saturdays, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, where they didn't teach you in school. Forgot to say that at the beginning of the show. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, where they didn't teach you in school. Uh, we deal with thousands of years of history and what led up to uh, the transatlantic slave trade taking place. Our guest speaker, on uh, Saturday, June 12th, so we do it on Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's a 10-week online course that I teach. Uh, our guest speaker on Saturday, June 12th, is going to be uh, Dr. David M. Hotep, author of the book, The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence. The First Americans uh, Were Africans, Documented Evidence. So he's going to deal with the premise of his book. He'll deal with the um, African presence uh, in the Americas going back at least based upon archaeological evidence going back at least 51,700 years ago. He'll deal with the discovery made in Allendale County, South Carolina in 2004 by Dr. Albert Goodyear, who's an archaeologist at the University of South Carolina. And uh, there was 13 types of evidence documenting an African presence in South Carolina dating back at least 51,700 years ago. So you can still register for the online course. We do it live. All the sessions are recorded. You can go back and watch it over and over again. Um, as soon as you register, you can watch the class from this past Saturday. Class is 54% off now because we're about halfway through the class. Uh, so it's on sale $60. All the sessions are archived. You go to our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, and scroll down the page. You'll see the information for the online course. Okay, click right here to register. It takes you to the next page and just click on enroll. As soon as you register, you can start watching the content. Okay, a few weeks ago, our guest speaker was Sister Nubia Wartford, uh, who's an African-American female archaeologist, and we dealt with the origins of ancient Kush and the African queens of antiquity. Fantastic presentations, a visual presentation, and uh, Dr. David M. Hotep is going to do a visual presentation as well. We'll have uh, some slides to show you all also. So that's Saturday, June 12, 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, so you can register for my online course. All right, let's continue. I want to go to um, this clip here. This is from 
uh, MSNBC. This is a clip dealing with uh, some background information on this land. Uh, this is from uh, this clip is from April 11th, 2021. California may return land taken from a black family 97 years ago. And you're going to hear um, Chief Dwayne Yellowfeather Shepherd uh, give you some background information on this history. Uh, let's go to this clip, Shakita. to correct a historic injustice when oceanfront property was seized from a black family almost 100 years ago. Here's coverage of the story from June 27, 1912. The headline there, Color People's Resort Beach with Opposition. The photo shows Willa Bruce. She bought the Manhattan Beach property, her family's first plot of land, for $1,225. She and her husband set up a resort that became popular with black beachgoers. Her family was forced off the land when it was seized under eminent domain, but her descendants have been fighting to get Bruce Beach back ever since. Joining us right now is Chief Dwayne Yellowfeather Shepherd, historian and designated spokesman for the Bruce family. Chief, thank you so much for being with us on this. A major development came last Friday. What are you hearing from Los Angeles County? Uh, well, Supervisor Janice Hahn uh, has announced that uh, she would like to see the land given back to the Bruce to the Bruce family. Uh, the, the present uh, building there is the uh, lifeguard training facility, and it is owned by the county of Los Angeles, which is the only part of the beach area that is owned by the county. And it just so happens it's sitting directly on our land uh, that was owned by our matriarch, Willa, Willa Bruce and Charles Bruce. So uh, she's proposing uh, legislation with, along with uh, Senator Steve Bradford and uh, Supervisor Holly Mitchell uh, to remove a clause that says that the county cannot transfer the land without first giving it back to the state. So that legislation is going to be in introduced uh, tomorrow, hopefully on a fast track with two-thirds vote of the legislature so that we can get the land back in opposition. She tell us about Willa Bruce and her husband, Charles. Very enterprising people. Uh, started from very meager uh, beginnings and worked their way up to being some very enterprising um, um, business owners there in Manhattan Beach. Uh, they started out with a lemonade stand, a little hot dog stand, and then they advanced it to having a dining hall, a dance hall, a bathhouse. They sold water novelties there, and they became very prominent people. The city council last Tuesday voted against issuing a public apology to descendants of the Bruce family, fearing potential lawsuits here. Uh, according to the Los Angeles Times, officials decided instead to issue a statement of acknowledgement and condemnation. But, Chief, would that sit well with the family? Would that be enough? No, absolutely not. And we're not looking for an apology. We want our property back. Hmm. We want restitution for the loss of revenue uh, for 96 years that our family would have had, the generational generational wealth that would have been built up at that time. And we want punitive damages for the city of Manhattan Beach City Council and the police department at that time colluding with the Ku Klux Klan to railroad our people out of it. So it sounds like, though, this legislation would not address those punitive damages. Does it sound like a lawsuit is imminent? Uh, yes, it does. I think that Manhattan Beach City Council should start trying to revise their budget because the rules are not going to be paved, parks are not going to be maintained, and playground equipment is not going to be replaced 
because the Bruce family deserves to have this rectified. They, they terrorized our family. Now, there's nothing that can be done to ever replace that. Our people lived only like five to seven years after this because of the stress. And, and they left in poverty after being very rich people. So we're, we're waiting for this to happen. I think that uh, we're going to be moving forward with a lawsuit in the very near future. Americans across the country. Okay. All right. Pause it. Pause it there, Shakita. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So that was from um, April 11th. Okay. I just want to give you some background information on this uh, story. That was from uh, April 11th, 2021. That was uh, Weekends with Alex Witt on MSNBC. And Lindsay Riser was sitting in for Alex. She spoke with Chief Dwayne Yellowfeather Shepherd, okay, who is uh, the official spokesperson for the Bruce family, okay, or an official spokesperson for the Bruce family. Okay, now there was an update to this story, and that's what I want to talk about here. Uh, NBC Los Angeles, we're going to go to clip one, Shakita. NBC Los Angeles has an update to the story from uh, June 3rd, uh, 2021. State Senate approves bill to return Bruce's beach property to descendants of black couples. State Senate approves bill to return beach property to descendants of black couple. Will and Charla Bruce purchased land in 1912. They eventually added some other parcels and created a beach uh, beach resort catering to African-American residents who had few options at the time for enjoying enjoying um, uh, the California coast. All right. Now, the let's see, let me flip over to this just a second here. So a bill to return a scenic beachfront property in Manhattan uh, beach to the descendants of of an African American African American couple who once operated a vibrant resort there was unanimously approved on Wednesday, June second, twenty twenty one, by the California State Senate. Okay, by the California State Senate. Now the uh, Bruce's Beach bill now goes to the state assembly, the California State Assembly for approval, which is like the state house of representatives. The long awaited legislation will return the property to the Bruce family after nearly a century. Now, once again, they need to return it back and say, you don't owe back property taxes because, you know, we don't want them to say, oh, you owe 50 years back property taxes. And, and, and as far as I'm concerned, they, they, should, they should never have to pay property taxes again for what happened to them and their family, et cetera. Now, the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors voted unanimously on April 20th, 2021, to direct the county CEO to come up with a plan to return the property. That step was required to make the land tran uh, transfer possible, okay? That step was required to make the land transfer possible. The county-owned portion of the property has a lifeguard training center, but restrictions on uh, the land mean it cannot be returned to the Bruce family unless the state legislation is approved. Okay, the county owned portion of the property has a lifeguard training center on it, 
but restrictions on the land mean it cannot be returned to the Bruce family unless the state legislation is approved. Now, the public seizure of the, the Bruce's Beach property has long stained the history of Manhattan Beach, particularly in the past year amid a nationwide reckoning on racial justice. Now, Willa and Charles Bruce purchased the land in 1912 for $1,225. They eventually added uh, some other parcels and created a beach resort catering to African-American residents who had few options at the time for enjoying uh, enjoying time along uh, the California coast. Now, complete with a bath, a bathhouse, dance hall and cafe, the resort attracted other African-American families who purchased adjacent land and created what they hoped would be a ocean view retreat. So other African-American families purchased land as well alongside um, the Bruce's. But the resort quickly became a target of the area's white populace, leading to acts of vandalism, attacks on vehicles of African-American visitors, and even a 1920 attack by the Ku Klux Klan. Okay, I, I want to go to uh, this clip. We're going to go to uh, clip one here, Shakita. Uh, State Assembly uh, approves bill to return Bruce's Beach property to descendants of black couple. Let's go to this clip. And take it off Bruce's mute. Beach okay. soon be returned. It's a beautiful park with a stormy past. Bruce's Beach could soon be returned to the descendants of its owners thanks to a bill that is now moving forward in the state Senate. NBC4's Angie Crouch has reaction now from the people who worked hard to make all of this happen. For 97 years, the Bruce family has been trying to regain ownership of its oceanfront property in Manhattan Beach. In 1912, Charles and Willa Bruce bought the land and built a thriving resort for African Americans at a time when many black people had limited beach access. But they faced harassment from their white neighbors. And in 1924, city leaders in Manhattan Beach used eminent domain to take the property, leaving the Bruce family destitute. The land was eventually given to L.A. County, which has agreed to return it pending state approval. Today, state senators approved that bill to allow the county to return the land to descendants of the Bruce family. The bill still has to pass the state assembly before it's final. This is a great first step forward for the Bruce family to finally get justice. Today, a spokesman for the Bruce family told us he's grateful that justice appears to be coming after all these years. One step closer to getting the possession of the land, which was illegally taken from us, uh, is, is a great uh, relief for us. The vote comes one day after the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre, where hundreds of black families had their homes destroyed by a white mob, and follows a social media campaign called Justice for Bruce's Beach, led by Manhattan Beach resident Kayvon Ward. I got really emotional when I heard the vote coming in, and I was just like, wow, I am a part of making this history. The land could be returned to the Bruce family as early as September if the state assembly also passes the bill. Discussions are underway for the family to possibly lease the land back to L.A. County, which would allow the county lifeguard headquarters to remain on the property. Angie Crouch, NBC4 News. Okay, so that's good news. That's an update there from NBC uh, Los Angeles, uh, Channel 4 in uh, Los Angeles. State Senate approves bill to return Bruce's Beach property to descendants of black couple. All right, so this has to pass the state 
uh, assembly as well, which is like the state house of representatives, but it's moving forward. And, uh, you know, this is, this is good news. And also this is an example of how elections have consequences as well. This is why it's not just the president that's important. It's not just the U.S. Senate and U.S. House of Representatives. It's also your state legislature and your governor because the bill has to be signed in the law by the governor as well. Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, also. Okay, now, uh, very quickly here, then we're going to go to this next story about the Tallahassee bus boycott of 1956. Um, the Bruces were undeterred. And let me go back to this here. Okay, so they were also targeted by the Ku Klux Klan. But the Bruces were undeterred and continued operating their small enclave by, uh, but under increasing pressure. The city moved to condemn their property and other surrounding parcels in 1924. So other families had their property taken as well. The, the, the city moved to condemn their property, the Bruce's property, and other surrounding parcels in 1924 because you had African-American families that brought property. Now, uh, it also appears that there were some white families that had their property taken as well, uh, seizing it through eminent domain under the pretense of planning to build a city park, seizing it through eminent domain in 1924 under the pretense of planning to build a city park. All right. The resort was forced out of business and the Bruce's and other black families ultimately lost their land in 1929. OK, I'm not sure if that's, if that's a typo. It's 29 or 24, but they lost the land. Other black families lost their land also. OK, it seized to eminent domain. Now, the family sued, claiming they were victims of a racially motivated removal campaign, which they were. The Bruce's were eventually awarded some damages. It's about fourteen thousand uh, five hundred dollars or something like that. Uh, but th th that's not what the, the, the property was worth. Uh, a lot more than that. OK. And let me get the. Is that fourteen thousand five hundred dollars? Yeah, that's what it was. Fourteen thousand five hundred dollars. Uh, they were uh, awarded. So the Bruce's were eventually awarded some damages, as were other displaced families. But the Bruce's were unable to reopen their resort anywhere else in town, despite the city claiming. Now, check this out. This is how you know this. This is how you know they were lying. Despite the city of Manhattan Beach claiming the land was needed for a city park. The property sat vacant for decades. See, this is why the Bruce's were saying they were they were the victims of a uh, uh, of a, a racial campaign, a racially motivated removal campaign. OK, later it's going to be called a uh, Negro removal or urban renewal. But here they took the land through eminent domain. They said we need to park for the children and all this stuff. And then the land sat vacant for decades. Well, why did you take the land in if you need it for a city park? It wasn't until 1960 that a park was built on a portion of the seized land. But you took the property in 1924. With city officials fearing, now pay attention to this, with city officials fearing the evicted families could take new legal action if the property was not used for the purpose it was seized for about 40 years prior. So then they decided to build a park. They said, look, we told them that we had to take this land back in 1924 to build a park. OK, so in 1960, let's go ahead and build this park because the, they, they can sue 
and, and say we took their land under false pretenses or what have you. So let's go ahead and build this park. 40 years later, the little kids now had grandchildren that we're going to build a park for. But we're going to go ahead and build it anyway. See, this is why when, when you have people, some white people, who say systemic racism doesn't exist, and then when you try to put laws and policies in place to address systemic racism, like the $4 billion in loan forgiveness for African-American farmers and, and, and Hispanic farmers, et cetera, in the uh, $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan that no Republicans voted for, and you try to deal with, you try to address decades of discrimination against African-American farmers, and they, and, and they call the remedy racist. They, they, they skip over the 100, 100 years of discrimination from the federal government and U.S. Department of Agriculture that caused African-American farmers to lose about 92% of their land, about 12 million acres of land. They skip over all that. They call the remedy, they call the remedy racist. They ain't call the past 100 years racist. The exact parcel of the land that Bruce is on was transferred to the state and the county in 1995. This, uh, the city park that now sits on a portion of the land seized, uh, uh, seized by the city has had a variety of names over the years, but it was not until 2006 that the city agreed to rename the park Bruce's Beach in honor of the evicted family. That's it. Okay, they named it after Bruce's Beach. After, <laughs> okay. He said, you can keep the name, just give us back the land. The honor, however, has been derided by critics as a hollow gesture uh, toward the family. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's very hollow. Okay. All right. So read this article here. State Senate approves bill to return Bruce's Beach property to descendants of black couple. All right. Uh, well, those watching on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network, and our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P, um, uh, keep uh, watching. We're going to keep broadcasting for uh, a few more minutes here. If you'd like this type of information, you can support The African History Network, dollar sign, The AHN Show through Cash App, dollar sign, The AHN Show through Cash App, or through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash The AHN Show, paypal.me forward slash The AHN Show. Uh, we're here six days a week. This helps us keep doing the research, stay on the air, uh, finance the show, keep broadcasting. Uh, this will help me get to and from Atlanta because I'm speaking in Atlanta for the Juneteenth Festival, uh, Friday, June 18th through Sunday, June 20th at Centennial Park. Uh, so visit JuneteenthATL.com for more information. I'll be speaking this Saturday and Sunday, 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. at the Amphitheater. Uh, we have the graphic up here to help you all. Uh, dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App. That's mine, and it, it, when you go to uh, that's our Cash App tag, and on our account it says Michael, and it shows my picture. These other ones here are fake. These are not African History Network Cash App accounts. These are fake ones. Somebody uh, set up. I already reported them to uh, Cash App. If you sent money to the fake accounts. Uh, there's a process through Cash App. You can go through and let them know that you were scammed, ask for your money back, and you can uh, send it to us if you like. All right. Uh, also, register for my online course. I teach on Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Visit AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Our guest speaker Saturday, June 12th, will be uh, historian um, Dr. David M. Hotel, author of the book, The First Americans Where Africans Documented Evidence. Okay. 
we're out of time here. Remember, right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. Okay, stand by. Stand by. All right. Uh, let's deal with this. Uh, I want to deal with this a little bit, this other story. We ran out of time here. But um, dealing with the Tallahassee bus boycott for 1956. We're going to talk about that for a little bit. And we'll probably talk about this some more on our show tomorrow because I want to make sure we're only on uh, 9, 10 a.m. the Superstation WFDF for uh, the first hour of the show. But I want to make sure the people in Detroit hear this and, and those who are listening on iHeartRadio, I want to make sure they hear this story as well. Okay. How's everybody doing? Share this broadcast on social media platforms. Invite your friends to tune in also. Okay, we've got Anthony uh Loretta. Just a few of the people watching. Sharon. Okay, let's go to this uh next story here. So I saw a uh, uh first saw an article dealing with this, and I, I heard about this bus boycott uh some years ago when I was doing research on the Montgomery bus boycott. Okay. But I haven't seen a lot of information on um on this boycott. So I I saw a article from the Zen Education Project dealing with uh, this day in history. And it deals with the uh, Tallahassee bus boycott that started May 26, 1956. May 26, 1956. So we just commemorated the 20 uh, the, the the 65th anniversary of the uh, Tallahassee bus boycott. Now, this boycott lasted seven months and is going to change the small city of Tallahassee, Florida at the time. It had a population of 38,000. It's going to change uh, the city forever. All right, here. Just a second. So it's going to change the city forever. And you have college students from Florida A&M who are uh, heavily involved in the uh, bus boycott, leading the bus boycott. So there's also an article from Tallahassee.com, Tallahassee.com. I want to pull that up uh, as well. It's an extensive article. Uh, this one is from May 23rd, 2016. From Tallahassee.com, I was reading uh, today to get uh, uh, more background information uh, on this story. Okay, let's look at this. So on May 26, 1956, Wilhelmina Jakes and Carrie Patterson, both students from Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University, better known as Florida A&M, Florida A&M, FAMU. They sat down in the whites-only section of a segregated bus in Tallahassee. When they refused to move, the bus driver pulled into a, uh, a local service station and called the police. The Tallahassee police arrested both students, charging them with placing themselves in a position to incite a riot. 
placing themselves in a position to incite a riot. They didn't charge them with inciting a riot. They charged them with placing themselves into a position to incite a riot. Now, in response, students at Florida A&M Florida uh, organized a campus-wide boycott of the city buses that attracted the support of local community members. One local community leader, Reverend C.K. Steele, helped establish the Inter-Civic Council, the ICC, to coordinate the boycott, the Inter-Civil Council. Like the Montgomery bus boycott, the organization created a carpool system to provide alternative transportation for local residents and students. And when you study the Montgomery bus boycott, this is something that they did. And they had a, a, a system of about 300 uh, cars, carpool system of about 300 cars. But this is something that they learned from um, the Reverend T.J. Jemison and the uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana bus boycott of 1953. Okay, the, 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 the Baton Rouge, Louisiana bus boycott of 1953, there by the Reverend T.J. Jemison. And that boycott lasted... Um, eight days. That boycott lasted eight days and it served as a template for the Montgomery bus boycott. So Dr. King and E.D. Nixon, who was a past president of the NAACP, they're calling the Reverend T.J. Jemison for guidance uh, on how to navigate with the Montgomery bus boycott. And then the Montgomery bus boycott, which is taking place at the same time as the one in Tallahassee, they are inspired, the, the, those in Tallahassee, um, uh, Carrie and Wilhelmina, uh, Wilhelmina Jason and Carrie Patterson, they are inspired by the Montgomery bus boycott, which is taking place at the same time. So let me go back to this here. All right. So like the Montgomery bus boycott, the organization created a carpool system, the ICC, the Inter-Civic Council. They created a carpool system to provide alternative transportation for local residents and students. Even with much harassment from local police, students and the local community sustained the boycott through December 1956 when the U.S. Supreme Court issued its ruling in a case that originated from the Montgomery from the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, shortly thereafter, uh, Steele and other local leaders boarded the segregated buses and sat in seats reserved for whites without being ordered to leave. A month later, the city repealed the segregated seating ordinance. Okay, and when you read about this, uh, and there's a big article from, it's like six pages because I printed it out. It's a big article from uh, Tallahassee.com, Tallahassee.com from uh, May 23rd, 2016. The ride to equality started 60 years ago. They also have one from um, September. There's a couple of articles I was looking at that uh, Tallahassee.com has. Um, the ride to equality started 60 years uh, ago. Uh, I want to go to this clip here. Uh, that they have that gives more background information. But in 1956, um, in 1956, it was 
the law in Tallahassee, uh, then, which at the time it was a small city, Tallahassee, Florida was a small city of 38,000 people. It was a uh, law at the time. Uh, segregation was the law at the time, okay, in the city and on buses. One third of the population of the 38,000 people, one third were African Americans, and they were confined to menial jobs uh, or professional positions within the African American community. Okay, let's go to this clip here. Okay, hold on, let me skip this. University students, Terry Patterson and Willie second. on May 26, 1956, two Florida AM University students, Terry Patterson and Wilhelmina Jakes, boarded a Tallahassee City bus and sat down in a front seat beside a white woman. The bus driver ordered the two black students to the back of the bus. When they refused, the two women were arrested, kicking off the Tallahassee bus boycott. The boycott lasted for seven months. It led to the hiring of black bus drivers and integrated seating on Tallahassee public transportation. It led to more than a decade of civil rights protests that shattered the wall of Tallahassee racial segregation. This Thursday, Tallahassee will celebrate the 60th anniversary of the bus boycott. I think the bus boycott um, necessary force and attention generation. Also to pull the people together one one time uh, from all walks of life, from all professions and different roles and even the religious connections. But it also prompted many of the more progressive or liberal minds to get together and deal with some of the issues in a way in which they had not been dealt with before. I think that's important also about the movement of the boycotts. Other, also, the fact that the boycotts proved that something could change something could happen. One of the chief figures of the Tallahassee bus boycott was Henry Steele's father, the Reverend C.K. Steele, who led the Inter-Civic Council and went on to help found the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and become one of the icons of the civil rights movement. I think my dad was the person for that time here in Tallahassee. He was um, well connected across the country with um, ministers and leaders um, and across denominational lines. He was, uh, he was one of the most outstanding preachers, I think, one would ever hear. He was charismatic. He was humble, though very forceful and consistent as well as persistent. Yet hundreds of Tallahassee's black residents were active in the boycott, and it was their solidarity that changed the fabric of Tallahassee. Well, the boss boycott was so important because Tallahassee was not a civilized uh, place to live at that time. And since the boycott, 
it was somewhat like a washing your dirty clothes. We had to wash out the dirt. Now the city is developing into a civilized place to live. Not completely yet, but it's coming. This is Gerald Ensley for the Tallahassee Democrat, Tallahassee.com. Okay, so that is um, the, the last uh, person you heard that participated in the bus boycott. That was Eddie, Eddie Barrington. And then before him, you heard um, Reverend C.K. Steele's son talking about his father and talking about the uh, Tallahassee uh, bus boycott of 1956. Uh, this is a picture here that we have. Uh, um, this is a picture of inter-civic council leaders wait outside City Hall in Tallahassee, Florida, on October 17, 1956, for the start of their trial on charges of separate uh, uh, on the charges of operating illegal carpool to transport African Americans boycotting buses and segregated uh, seating protests, okay? So what happened is, so here you have leaders from the Inter-Civic Council. When you study the Montgomery bus boycott, uh, they set up the carpool system. They get the idea from the, of the carpool system from Reverend, C, from Reverend, uh, um, Reverend um, um, uh, T.J. Jemison. Reverend T.J. Jemison leads the Baton Rouge, Louisiana bus boycott of 1953. And they get, the, they get that idea of the carpool system from, from him. They're going to be sued in Montgomery. They get sued also for having the carpool system. All right. And to, to, to navigate around and they were sued. It was said, it was said that, you know, they were, it had to do with like kind of like operating without a license. They're competing with the taxi cabs. It was a whole thing. The taxi cabs dropped their prices. At first, the taxi cab drivers, a lot of them dropped their prices lower. Uh, then they couldn't do that. Then, you know, they're going to set up this carpool system with a dispatch of 300 cars to help people get around and get to work or what have you. They're going to get sued for that. Um, so, and then you see here in 1956, they operate a carpool system as well. Now in, in, uh, Montgomery, Alabama, they set up the, what's known as the Montgomery Improvement Association. Uh, they, they organized the Montgomery Improvement Association in December, 1955, early December, 1955 to organize and guide the Montgomery bus boycott. And they elect. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was a new minister in the city, hadn't even been there a year yet. They they elect him to head up the Montgomery bus boycott. And he didn't even want the job. He thought that other activists, civil rights activists who were there, E.D. Nixon or others who were more established in Montgomery, Alabama, she headed up. But they chose him. And Rosa Parks talked about this. They talk about it in the documentary Eyes on the Prize. Edie Nixon talked about it. They said that Dr. King was so new in Montgomery, Alabama, that he didn't have any enemies. Basically, he didn't have any enemies. So he was so new. So they chose him to head up the uh, Montgomery bus boycott. But they're going to be sued also in 56. Uh, 
because of the carpool in Montgomery, and they're going to be sued as well here in uh, Tallahassee. Okay, now, uh, Tallahassee had a population of 38,000 people, and one-third were African-Americans at the time in 1956. And African-Americans were confined to menial jobs or professional positions in the African-American community. Uh, African-Americans could not eat in most white-owned restaurants. They could not shop at most white-owned stores. Public water, fountains, public water fountains were labeled for whites only and colored only. On uh, May 26, 1956, two Florida A&M students changed the course of history. Wilhelmina Jakes and Carrie Patterson boarded the Tallahassee City bus on South Adams Street and plopped down on a front bench beside a white woman. The bus, or, the bus driver ordered them to move to the back of the bus. When the two students refused to do so, the driver drove to a nearby gas station and called the police. Okay, so we know uh, Jakes and Patterson were both arrested. Within days, the African-American community had inaugurated the bus boycott. For seven months, the, uh, the bus company's main customers refused to ride city buses. Okay, for seven months, the bus company's main customers refused to ride uh, city buses. The boycott attracted national attention. It led to the arrest of 26 people and two temporary shutdowns of the bus company. And it changed Tallahassee, Florida forever. Now, Glenda Rabby, R-A-B-B-Y, author of the book, The Pain and the Promise, The Pain and the, Pain and the Promise, which is the seminal book about the Tallahassee civil rights movement. She said, quote, it is impossible to overestimate the significance of the bus boycott in Tallahassee civil rights history. It is impossible to overestimate the significance of the bus boycott in Tallahassee civil rights history. She said, quote, it was the first organized protest and successful challenge to racial segregation and discrimination in the city of Tallahassee, in the city of Tallahassee Florida. The boycott helped to sow the seeds of discontent that would eventually flourish in a protest movement against the very foundation of Southern society, the unjust laws and customs designed to perpetuate and enforce racial inequality. So this is, this is the seeds of that. This, this bus boycott in 1956 launched by two college students from Florida A&M University inspired by the Montgomery bus boycott. Now, uh, May 26, we just commemorated the 65th anniversary of uh, the beginning of this bus boycott, which started May 26, uh, 1956. So the, uh, the 1956 bus boycott was initiated by Florida A&M students, uh, Wilhelmina Jakes and Carrie Patterson. And you see the picture up here of them. Uh, they were arrested on Saturday, um, May 26, 1956. On Sunday night, a cross was burned 
in the front yard of the home near campus where they rented rooms. On Monday morning, Florida A&M student body president Brodus Hartley, H-A-R-T-L-E-Y, Brodus Hartley called a meeting of the 2,300 students who voted to boycott city buses. So here you have Florida A&M students engaged and entrenched in this economic boycott. They, he called a meeting of the 2,300 Florida A&M students who voted to boycott the city buses. Students spilled out of, the, out of Lee Hall. Afterward, just as the city bus was coming through campus, the students surrounded the bus and demanded passengers get off. Members of the football team lifted up one side of the bus and, quote, literally shook people out of there, end quote, said Humphreys, the future Florida A&M uh, president, who was then a junior chemistry major. He said, quote, the student body was very upset, end quote. So the, 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 the Florida A&M football team is lifting up one side of the bus, literally shaking people out of the bus. You have students who come out of Lee Hall and they see people on the bus while this bus boycott is taking place and they're furious and they're surrounding the bus. But only a week remained in the school year at a time when college students departed Tallahassee, Florida in mass during the summers. So the bus boycott could have fizzled out. But the next day, several dozen African-American pastors and businessmen met at Bethel Missionary Baptist Church to form the Inter-Civic Council, the ICC, the Inter-Civic Council to support the bus boycott. The group elected Bethel Baptist uh, pastor C.K. Steele, S-T-E-E-L-E, -E as ICC chairman. And you heard his son in the clip we just played. The next night, more than 500 African-American residents including domestic workers, laborers, housewives, senior citizens, Florida A&M uh, employees, and state workers all met in support of the ICC, the Inter-Civic Council, and they crafted three demands for city leaders. They wanted bus seating should be uh, first come, first serve. All people should be treated courteously. And the bus should hire African-American bus drivers. It would be the ICC and the African-American adults of Tallahassee, Florida, who carried the bus boycott. Retired Pastor Henry Steele, second of uh, C.K. Steele, Reverend C.K. Steele's six children, who was Henry Steele was 12 years old at the time of this bus boycott. He said, quote, I was amazed and gratified by the big response. We saw people from all walks of life come together on this bus situation. He said, nobody complained it shouldn't be done or couldn't be done. Okay, and Henry Steele was in the clip that you heard. Now the city dropped charges against uh, 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 Jakes and uh, Patterson, Wilhelmina Jakes and Carrie Patterson. The city dropped charges against them, hoping to avoid a test case in the courts. Tallahassee Democrat, the, the newspaper Tallahassee Democrat, and this article is from the Tallahassee Democrat. Tallahassee Democrat newspaper editor Malcolm Johnson assembled a biracial committee in hopes of defusing the boycott. 
but the committee dissolved when 14 members of the ICC showed up to protest. Okay. The Inter-Civic Council, the ICC, the Inter-Civic Council. Now, the Tallahassee City Commission tried to broker a deal with 15 quote-unquote friendly black leaders, including legendary uh, Florida A&M University football coach Jack Gaither, Jake Gaither, a gesture that earned contempt in the African-American community. The city commission did ask the bus company to treat all, custom, all customers courteously and hire African-American drivers. Now, Seth Gaines, David Moore, and Edgar Richardson were the first three African-American drivers hired. Seth Gaines, David Moore, and Edgar Richardson. But the city commission refused to endorse integrated seating on the buses. City leaders were convinced integrating seating on the buses would lead to school integration, which had been ordered by the U.S. Supreme Court two years earlier, Brown versus Board of Education, U.S. Supreme Court case 1954. So they didn't want to integrate, they didn't want to desegregate schools in Tallahassee. And they said, if you desegregate the buses, then next thing you know, these Negroes gonna want to desegregate the schools. But even though it already, even though the law had, even though uh, the law was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court, okay, it, and desegregation was struck down, I should say, by the U.S. Supreme Court, okay, they didn't want to follow the highest court in the land. So the city commission refused to endorse integrated seating on the buses in Tallahassee, Florida. City leaders were convinced integrated seating on the buses would lead to school integration. Next thing you know, these Negroes are going to want equality. We can't do that. We can't desegregate the bus. Next thing you're going to know, they're going to want equality. They're going to want the same thing that white people have. How dare they? Now, the U.S. Supreme Court had struck down desegregation in schools two years earlier at Brown versus Board of Education. And this U.S. Supreme Court case offered chaos in Southern society. But uh, now the bus company's revenues dropped precipitously as African-American residents refused to ride on the bus. On July 1st, 1956, the buses stopped running entirely. Henry Steele, son of Reverend C.K. Steele, said, quote, it was so good to see the solidarity of everyone, end quote. When the buses quit running, it was unbelievable. It was a very good sign we were making inroads. It was a very good sign we were making inroads. This is an economic boycott that lasted seven months. The Montgomery bus boycott lasted 381 days. It lasted basically 12, 13 months, 381 days, the Montgomery bus boycott. The uh, Tuskegee economic boycott of 1956, 1957. Tuskegee, Alabama economic boycott of 1957 lasted four years. That lasted to 1961. That was not even talked about a lot. That lasted four times as long as the Montgomery bus boycott the one in Tuskegee, Alabama. That was over voting rights because the state legislature 
had redrawn the district of Tuskegee, Alabama to that. And when they redrew the district through gerrymandering, it resembled a 26 sided salamander. I ain't making this up. This is it. They, they redrew the district and it resembled a 26 sided salamander. When you research this, because I and I have. This is what they said. And. They redrew the, the state legislature, redrew the district. In a way that locked out all except, I think, about 400. Uh, it locked out all except 400 African-American voters. And it brought in all these white voters into the uh, into the, this, 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 this district. Okay. And this was at a time when African-Americans in Tuskegee, Alabama had a, they had a, uh, a higher literacy rate than white people in Tuskegee, Alabama because of, um, Tuskegee Institute. You can look at this article here. I've talked about this before. I talked about this actually a few years ago on Wake Up with Steve Hood when I used to be on the morning show here in Detroit on 9, 10 a.m. the Superstation WFDF. Uh, this article here from nvnvdatabase.swarthmore.edu. We just Google this. Black citizens boycott white merchants for U.S. voting rights, Tuskegee, Alabama, 1957-1961. We may have to do that again with Joe Manchin's punk ass in uh, West Virginia and uh, dealing with Republicans in the Senate and not wanting to pass H.R. 1 or H.R. 4. We may have to go, we, we may have to uh, uh, Sankofa and, and go back and look and see how we dealt with these people before and redistribute the pain through targeted sustained economic withdrawal strategies and put pressure on corporations like they were doing the past few weeks dealing with uh, the voter restriction bills in Georgia and other states. We may have to do this and have corporations put pressure on, on Joe Manchin and some other ones to push uh, to get H.R. 1 passed. How's everybody doing? Share this broadcast on your social media platforms. Invite your friends to tune in. And there was another, there was another one. Uh, will this one come up? Will this article come up here? It's one from the New York Times. Okay, this is in... Um, this one here from the New York Times is in their archives, but you can go back and look at it. I think you may have to get a membership. This reprints 19, June, July 7th, 1957. Um, is this the same one? Tuskegee, Alabama, June, two-week-old Negro economic boycott. 
Okay, I think this may be part of it. I think they started the boycott back up. I'm not sure if this is the same one. I think it is. Negroes stopping Alabama boycott, leader of Tuskegee economic strike, says aim is achieved, but redistribution is set. I think that's premature because this one lasted four years. Uh, this boycott lasted four years. Let me see here. Okay. But there was another one. If you uh, research this, you're going to see, I forgot which source that was. Um, but it talked about, and I actually, uh, there was a documentary made on the, uh, let me see, hold on, let me get this straight. Okay. I'm thinking of the, uh, there was a documentary of the 1953 Baton Rouge, Louisiana bus boycott. There's a documentary made about that. I watched that documentary. But there was a video of um, an interview with a member of the state legislature in Tuskegee, Alabama, who engineered the uh, gerrymandering. Here we go. This is right here. I think this is here. This has it in here. Civil rights in America, racial voting. Okay, that's, that's one of them. Let's see, where is that? Well, you just uh, search some of these sources here, you'll find it. I have to go look and see, because um, I have some of these articles printed up, I have to go look and see which uh, one had that information in it. All right, but anyway, let's continue. All right, how's everybody doing? How you all like this type of information? People's history and culture teaches them how to deal with the problems of the past in the present and the future to meet the needs of the community. Now, history and culture gives us our foundation. It gives us our values, our interests, and our principles. And this gives us uh, a cultural paradigm that we see reality through. Okay, this gives us our self-esteem, our self-development, our self-worth. All right, let's continue here quickly. So, uh, bus revenues dropped precipitously as African-American residents refused to ride on the buses. Now, on July 1st, the buses stopped running entirely. Uh, Henry, Henry Steele, son of the Reverend C.K. Steele, said it was so good to see the solidarity of everyone. When the buses quit running, it was unbelievable. It was a very good sign we were making inroads, end quote. Now, to fill the transportation void. The ICC uh, organized carpools with 65 African-Americans carrying uh, uh, African-Americans to and from their jobs. OK, so they had 65 uh, uh, African-Americans driving, carrying um, uh, people to and from their jobs. City police responded by ticketing drivers for minor and imagined 
and fractions. Uh, uh, Reverend C.K. Steele was the first driver ticketed, charged with supposedly running a stop sign and speeding. The city commission threatened to pass a law banning the carpools. The city commission threatened to pass a law banning the carpools. Instead, the state attorney general ruled that carpools were violating state laws about cars for hire. They ruled that carpools were violating state law for car, uh, state law regarding cars for hire because uh, it probably had to do with something. See, see, with taxi cabs, they have to have a license. Usually that license comes from the state. Okay, there's state regulations around taxis. And with the carpool, there are no state laws. I mean, you know, there are no, um, you don't need a license or anything like that. Okay, so it probably had to do with the fact to say, okay, you're, you're in violation of state law. You don't have uh, a license to carpool. And there's also comp competition for the taxi cabs. Now, in September, 21 drivers and the ICC were arrested and charged with violating the state law. Okay, they were arrested and charged with violating the state law. And this picture that, that you see here of members of leaders of the ICC, uh, this is from October 17, 1956. Enter civic council leaders, wait outside City Hall in Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, for the start of their trial on charges of operating illegal carpool and illegal carpool to transport African-Americans boycotting buses and segregated seating protests. Reverend C.K. Uh, Steele, council president, is second from the left in the front row. Second from the left in the front row. Okay, so it's probably right in here. Second from the left in the front row. Okay, probably right there. Second from the left in the front row. Now, in September, 21 drivers in the ICC were arrested and charged with violating state law. After their trial, all 22 parties. After their trial, all 22 parties were convicted by City Judge John Rudd, R-U-D-D, -D, and each person was sentenced to a fine of $500 and 60 days in jail. City Judge John Rudd suspended the jail sentences, but left the fines in place. Now, ICC member Dan Speed, S-P-E-E-D, owner of a French town grocery store, paid the $11,000 in fines. Okay. He paid, uh, ICC member Dan Speed paid the $11,000 in fine, in fines. Reverend C.K. Steele spent several years speaking around the nation to pay off the $11,000. Okay. So, you know, you, you have to have, uh, I, I remember before, um, Andrew Young 
uh, talking about the civil rights movement, um, the boycotts and the marches and things like this. And he said that, you know, he said, you know, even he said, even Dr. King said this, he said, we don't want everybody marching with us because somebody's going to have to bail us out of jail. Okay, we don't want everybody marching with us because somebody's going to have to somebody's going to have to bail us out of jail. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, it's important to have economic empowerment, important to have businesses because you're going to need money to finance these movements. And you needed people to bail people out of jail. OK, you need African-American business owners and things like this and entertainers to donate money to bail people out of jail. So this is one of the reasons why economic empowerment is so important. Yes, to hire our own people and all that stuff, but to finance movements as well. Now, the convictions ended the carpools and eventually the boycott. The evictions ended the carpools and eventually the boycott. For a while, African-Americans walked to and from their jobs. On December 23rd, 1956, the ICC voted to formally end the boycott. In June of 1956, a federal court struck down segregated seating in a case brought uh, by the Montgomery, Alabama bus boycott. In November, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the ruling integrated seating on buses was now the law of the land see so the so even though they had this boycott it, it lasted seven months they're going to they're going to suspend the boycott okay uh because of the lawsuit regarding carpooling but with the montgomery bus boycott they had a three-pronged strategy i've talked about this before and i wrote a seven-page article dealing with the montgomery bus boycott uh, well, he, he, then with the boycott and, and why Dr. King told us to uh, redistribute the pain through targeted, sustained economic boycotts. They had a three-pronged strategy with the Montgomery bus boycott. They had the mass protests. They had the economic boycott, economic withdrawal. But they also had a uh, legal strategy, okay, in the courts and lawsuits. Um, you had the lawsuit of Browder versus Gale filed February 1st, uh, 1956. The lawsuit of Browder versus Gale. And this lawsuit is going to go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And this is what actually ended segregation on the buses in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, the plaintiffs in the lawsuit, yeah, four African-American women. And I think I have this here in one of my, this is my presentation from Dr. King Day. Um, let me pull this up. I have. I have this slide in one of my presentations here. So the plaintiffs in the uh, case were four African-American women. Uh, Aurelius Browder, Claudette Colvin, uh, who nine months before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat, uh, Susie McDonald, and Mary, Mary Louise Smith. Okay, you had four African American women. 
who were the plaintiffs uh, in the lawsuit. And they sued uh, the mayor of Montgomery, Alabama, Mayor William A. Gale, G-A-Y-L-E, Mayor William A. Gale. They sued uh, the Montgomery Bus Lines, Inc., the Montgomery Bus Company. Uh, They sued all these people. They sued the chief of police, city council. And this lawsuit goes all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's going to be appealed. And then in December, um, right around December 20th, the final verdict comes down that uh, segregation on the buses is unconstitutional. All right. And this is what's going to end it, it, when the, when uh, uh, when that verdict came down, they're going to Montgomery Improvement Association ends the uh, Montgomery bus boycott. Contrary to popular belief, they didn't uh, put the bus company out of business. Bus company lost a lot of money, but they didn't put the bus company out of business or anything like that. The lawsuit was filed February 1st, 1956. By attorney Fred Gray and uh, Charles D. Langford. Now, attorney Fred Gray is going to be the same attorney who files the lawsuit in about 1973 or so on behalf of the survivors of the Tuskegee experiment of untreated syphilis in a Negro male, also known as the Tuskegee experiment. It's attorney Fred Gray who's going to file the lawsuit on behalf of those survivors and their descendants and get um, their their family and get reparations also. Okay. Um, this lawsuit, February 1st, 1956, this was filed two days after, uh, white supremacist bombed Dr. King's house. Okay. And his house was bombed twice in 1956, once in, uh, uh, late January 56. And then also in September, 1956. Now, Janetta Reese was also a plaintiff in the case, but outside pressure convinced Janetta Reese to withdraw from the case in uh, February. But you had these African-American women who were plaintiffs in this lawsuit known as Browder versus Gale. And this lawsuit is going to end segregation on the buses in Montgomery, but it's, uh, it, but it's in segregation on buses everywhere it becomes law all across the country, not just in Montgomery, Alabama. And that impacts what's taking place in Tallahassee, Florida as well. Okay, those are slides from uh, my lecture, The Distortion of the Legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The Revolutionary Will Not Be Televised on the Television. That's uh, available at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All my DVD lectures and digital downloads are there. Okay, let's continue here. So in June 1956, a federal court struck down segregated seating in a case brought by the Montgomery, Alabama bus boycott. That, that was the lawsuit of Browder versus Gale. In November, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the ruling. Integrated seating on buses was now uh, was now the law of the land. Even so, the Tallahassee City Commission refused to rescind its ban on integrated seating. So the ICC voted to ride the buses in a, quote, non-segregated manner. They voted to ride the buses in a non-segregated matter, manner. Starting on Christmas Eve, the Reverend C.K. Steele and other ICC members began riding uh, the buses, sitting in the front of, uh, sitting in the front whites only section. A Life magazine photographer captured the often published 
photo of the Reverend C.K. Steele and Bethel AME Pastor H. McNeil Harris riding at the front of the bus. Bus manager Charles Carter and nine bus drivers were arrested for allowing the integrated bus rides. Okay, so they say, wait a second, man, we, we, that's, the, uh, that's the law of the land. You're gonna you you're gonna arrest us for uh <laughs> you're gonna arrest us for following the law of the land. This is in Tallahassee, Florida. This bus boycott is going to uh, plant the seeds of uh, civil rights, the civil rights struggle in Tallahassee, Florida, and is going to change Tallahassee forever as well. And a lot of people don't know about this bus boycott. A lot of people talk about Montgomery bus boycott, but there were a number of uh, bus boycotts, trans transportation boycotts that took place. How's everybody doing? Okay, how y'all like this type of information? So this is the famous uh, picture here of the uh, Reverend C.K. Steele and Reverend H. Uh, McNeil Harris in uh, 1956. This is an iconic photo riding on the front of a Tallahassee City bus, December 24th, 1956, Christmas Eve, when protesters began riding the buses in a non-segregated manner. They began riding the buses in a non-segregated manner. Okay, so bus manager Charles Carter and nine bus drivers were arrested for allowing the integrated bus rides. The city announced it would revoke the then private bus company's charter. The city announced it would revoke the then private bus company's charter. Reverend C.K. Steele and ICC and the ICC responded by calling for a mass integrated ride on December 27th, 1956. But when, so this is two days after Christmas, December 27th, 1956. But when 200 white youths showed up with baseball bats and rocks at the bus terminal at Park Avenue and Monroe Street, the protest was called off. On New Year's Eve, rocks were thrown through the windows of Reverend C.K. Steele's home next door to Bethel Baptist Church. And two weeks later, gunshots were fired through the windows of Dan Speed's grocery store. Now, Dan Speed was the one who uh, loaned the 11,000, who paid the $11,000 in fines for the uh, people involved in the carpool who had to go to court and were hit with $500 fines. The 22 people were hit with $500 fines. Dan Speed, who owned the grocery store, they're going to, uh, two weeks later, fire gunshots through the windows of his grocery store. On January 3rd, a cross was burned on the front lawn of Bethel Baptist Church. Now, the violence dismayed even the white community. The Tallahassee Democrat newspaper wrote an editorial condemning the cross burning as a, quote, shameful device unbecoming 
any citizen of a free count of a free country unbecoming of a free citizen of a citizen of a free country governor leroy collins a tallahassee native stepped in to head off further violence on january 1st he suspended the bus service on january 1st uh governor collins suspended the bus service. This would be January 1st, 1957. Now, on January 9th, the city commission offered its solution. January 9th, 1957. The city commission offered its solution. Assigned seating on city buses. Drivers were ordered to assign seats to every rider based on weight, uh, based on weight distribution, health and safety, and peace, tranquility, and good order. The drivers were ordered to assign seats to every rider based on weight distribution, health and safety, and peace, tranquility, and good order. Though the policy was designed to still separate bus riders based on race, it made no mention of segregated seating. Okay, it made no mention of segregated seating. All right, and let me flip over to this here. The second here. All right. All right, so here you have uh, Reverend uh, C.K. Steele and Reverend Harris, December 24th, Christmas Eve, um, riding on the bus in a non-segregated manner. And this is uh, Wilhelmina and Carrie. They were the ones who launched this uh, bus boycott, two Florida A&M students. May 26, 1956, Wilhelmina Jakes and Carrie Patterson uh, launched this uh, boycott. And then here you have um, members of the ICC who have to go to court because they're being fined. This is uh, outside of court in uh, October 56. So you're going to have Governor Leroy Collins uh, of uh, Tallahassee, uh, of Florida, Governor of Florida. He stepped in to head off further violence. On January 1st, 1957, he suspended uh, the bus service. Now, the uh, January 9th, the city commission offered a solution to sign seating on city buses. The policy satisfied uh, Governor Collins, who lifted the ban on the buses. But African-Americans continued, continued their unofficial boycott and the buses operated half full for a week. Now, on January 19th, 1957, January 19th, 1957, the ICC tried a new tactic. 
three African-American uh, Florida A&M University students and three white uh, F, uh, uh, Florida State University students boarded a bus and took their assigned seats. Once the bus began moving, one student named Joe Spagna, S-P-A-G-N-A, jumped up and traded seats with one of the black students, creating two interracial groups of riders. When Joe Spagna refused to return to his seat, the driver drove the bus to the police station. All right, so they're still focused on breaking the back of segregation in Tallahassee. They're still focused on breaking the back of segregation in Tallahassee. Now, when Joe Spagna refused to return to his seat, the driver drove the bus to the police station where Joe Spagna and his two African-American companions, Leonard Speed and Johnny Herndon, were arrested. Now, Judge John Rudd found all three of them guilty, sentencing each to 60 days in jail and a $500 fine. The case was appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which refused to hear the case. In June of 1958, uh, Herndon and Speed served 15 days of their sentences before Judge Rudd released them. Joe Spagna, the only white person arrested during the boycott, had already graduated and left Tallahassee, Florida. Under pressure, so he was the only white person uh, arrested. Let me see. Guilty sentence in each of 60 days. Okay. Case with, okay. Uh, under pressure from Governor Collins, from a Governor Collins appointed biracial committee, the bus company was allowed to gradually rescind its assigned seating program. Okay. Under pressure from a Governor, Governor Collins appointed biracial committee, the bus company was allowed to gradually rescind its assigned seating program. African-Americans began returning to the buses. Though the assigned seating ordinance was never officially repealed, it was considered wiped from the books when the bus company was sold to the city in 1974. Now, here are, um, here's a picture of David Moore, and David Moore is, he's one of the first African-American bus drivers uh, there in Tallahassee, Florida. Let me pull this up here. Okay, so uh, David Moore was um, one of the first African-American bus drivers in Tallahassee, Tallahassee, Florida. He was one of the first two African-American bus drivers hired by Cities Transit Company. And uh, you see him uh, behind the wheel. Uh, he sits at. Uh, at the wheel as Tallahassee buses resumed operation August 2nd, 1956 in Tallahassee after a month month suspic uh, suspension caused by uh, the boycott.
Willie C. Wilson, a driver trainee, sits behind uh, David Moore. So you see these two African-American men. Willie C. Wilson, who's a bus driver trainee, is sitting, sitting behind bus driver David Moore. Now, the Tallahassee uh, bus boycott, which started May 26, 1956, started five months after the Montgomery bus boycott uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, which started December 5th, Monday morning, December 5th, 1955, which was a watershed event of the civil rights movement and catapulted its leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., to national fame. There, was the, uh, there also were bus boycotts in Atlanta, Miami, Tampa, Tampa, uh, Florida, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. That, that, that was one in Baton Rouge in 1953 and Columbia, South Carolina. Montgomery, Alabama was not the only one. But Tallahassee's bus boycott had made a mark. On May 26, 1957, the ICC celebrated the one-year anniversary of the bus boycott with a rally that drew Dr. King to Tallahassee, Florida, to speak. Now, Tallahassee's um, uh, boycott was sustained without the considerable outside financial and moral support that poured into the more famous uh, Montgomery bus boycott. It proved that local blacks in other southern communities could sustain an indigenous and ongoing protest movement against segregation. The bus boycott kickstarted Tallahassee's civil rights movement. The bus boycott kickstarted Tallahassee's civil rights movement. In 1957, Reverend K.S. DuPont became the first Af African-American since Reconstruction to run for the city commission. In 1971, James Ford became the first uh, African-American elected to the city commission. In 1960, Florida A&M uh, University students boycotted segregated lunch counters, gaining national attention for a jail-in, a jail-in in which Patricia Stephens Due, D-U-E, and 10 others stayed in jail for 49 days rather than pay their fines. In 1963, uh, FAMU and, and Florida State University students picketed Tallahassee's racially segregated theaters. Today, African-Americans and whites sit anywhere they wish on city-owned Star Metro buses. Of Star Metro's 107 bus drivers, 94 are African-American. Of Star Metro's 107 bus drivers, 94 are African-American. Tallahassee, Florida, whose 186,000 uh, population is still one-third African-American, has had black mayors, uh, city commissioners, a black city manager, an African-American chief of police, and hundreds of public positions filled by African-Americans. Read the rest of this um, here at... Uh, read the rest of this at uh, TallahasseeDemocrat.com or uh, Tallahassee.com. Uh, it's an extensive article here. As I printed it up, it's six pages. Name of this article, once again, 
is the ride to equality started years ago. The ride to equality started years ago. Okay, this is about the uh, Tallahassee bus boycott of 1956. All right, hey, if you like this type of information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App or through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. Uh, this helps us keep doing the research. We're here seven, uh, six days a week. Helps us keep doing the research, keep broadcasting, pay some of the bills, et cetera, stay on the air. Uh, this also helped me get to and from Atlanta because I'm speaking in Atlanta for the Juneteenth Festival, June 18th through the 20th, uh, 2021, Friday, June 18th through Sunday, June 20th. I'll be there at uh, Centennial Park. Visit JuneteenthATL.com for more information. Uh, we have the information here up for our cash app. Our cash app tag is dollar sign the AHN show through cash app. Dollar sign the AHN show through cash app. So we have ours up in the fake ones, uh, so they're labeled fake account. Ours is dollar sign the AHN show, S-H-O-W. That's our actual tag, and then it says has my name. It shows Michael, and it shows my picture there. All right, be sure to register for the online course that I teach on Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa. Understand the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you in school. Our guest speakers, Saturday, June 12th, will be... Um, Dr. David M. Hotep, author of the book, The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence. And we'll deal with thousands. Of, it's a 10-week online course that I teach. We deal with thousands of years of history, and we deal with what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. So we have the information at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, uh, then also on the um, homepage of our website as well. We do the class live. All the sessions are recorded, so you can go back and watch it over and over again. As soon as you register, you can watch the class we just did this past Saturday. So I'm going to post a link here as well. You can watch from around the world, and even after the course is over with, you can still uh, you still have access. You can still watch the content. All right. We have to get out of here. Remember, the African History Network, we focus on educating and empowering and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. Gain knowledge in minutes from insightful summaries of progressive and socially conscious books. Blacklisted gives you access to curated content that will satisfy your curiosity to learn and understand different perspectives. Empower yourself through inspirational and actionable ideas. It's easy to read or listen to on the go. Blacklisted. Empower yourself. Start your free trial today. Hi, I'm Joel Wilson, President and CEO of JCW Computer Consulting, LLC, a technology implementation firm with over 20 years of satisfying customers. We offer a full spectrum of industry top-tier branded services, we are an authorized partner or reseller for Lenovo, Zoom, T-Mobile, Microsoft 365, and Surface tablets, Google Workspace, Acer, Asus, Samsung, PCmatic security software, and many more. Our online store features laptops, Chromebooks, computers, printers, accessories, and software. Businesses, take advantage of our free one-hour Zoom tech consultation and know 
We offer top nationwide high-speed internet service providers, voice over IP, and cellular phone services. Home users, don't miss our current in-stock Chromebook inventory. Please visit us at jcwcc.com or call 215-879-6701.